Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture will be Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, which is on page 495 of the Bibles in the seatbacks. If you do not have a Bible, please accept the Bible in the seatback as a free gift from Northridge. Hear the word of the Lord. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one another, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir, come. Let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out to the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected had become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Thus says God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that... It presents to us. We thank you that it shows us that from before the foundation of the world, you had a plan to be glorified through a people who would be acquired through the sacrifice of your son and made holy by the work of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for that. God, we thank you that in this very room, there are some of those people and God, we thank you that that bad shepherds and bad vine dressers could not keep your work from being done. Lord, that all that which the world rejects is the thing upon which you build and make the chief the cornerstone of your house. And so we thank you for that. Lord, we pray that you would do a holy work in us to cause our hearts to be receptive to your word. We pray that we would not only hear, but that we would apply and that we would um, allow our lives to be conformed to what your word presents to us. Lord, I pray for myself that you would make me an able uh, vessel to be able to present your word in all of its truth and holiness and power and majesty before your people. And that, God, I would not get in the way of that. And that uh, at the end of this message, God, that, that you would be glorified in the saving of sinners and that you would be glorified in the worship of saints and that you would be glorified in the proclamation of your word. And we ask all this in Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. You can be seated. Um, hey, I, I want to thank you real quick. Um, those of you who were here last week uh, got to hear a, just a fantastic message from Wes White, our missionary to Africa. And at the conclusion of the service, we asked you to um, to give to help us close out our uh, missions obligation for the quarter, for which would have been the fourth quarter of 2022. Um, and we took that offering. And I want to say, as always, you guys came through like champs. And we are uh, we are quite uh, well on our way. Not only we we finished fourth quarter, but we're quite well on our way for the first quarter as well. And so I want to tell you thank you and God bless you. And, and it's just fantastic. Wes wanted us to thank you too for your hospitality. And um, and uh, just uh, he was really blessed being here and we'll have him back real soon. So uh, just wanted to mention that to you. So uh, you may have noticed that our reading was from Mark today after a a, a brief pause to celebrate Advent and to inaugurate a new year, and of course last week to welcome and support our missionaries. We're turning again back today to our ongoing examination of the book of Mark. Now, I realize it's been several weeks, and you might be, uh, we, we were doing Mark, you know, <laughs> but uh, uh, let me kind of give you a refresher of where we're at. So uh, we've entered the final movement of Jesus's earthly ministry. He's come to Jerusalem. You'll remember uh, the triumphal entry and, and the palm branches that we were so familiar with. And he did so to fulfill that all that the prophets had spoken about him, that, that he was, you know, going straightway to the cross. That was his final destination um, in his earthly ministry. Um, but an important aspect of this culmination involves something that is often overlooked as we rush to the cross and look at what that means in the forgiving of sinners and the, and the salvation of, of the elect. Um, the important aspect of this culmination involves Jesus surmising and pronouncing judgment on the Jewish system as it stood at the, that moment in the beginning of the first century. And this was clear. We're, we've already seen this, um, you might recall, was Jesus as he is entering Jerusalem the day after he arrived, and he curses the fruitless fig tree. You'll remember he went to find fruit in the tree, and, and there was none, and so he issues a curse against it. And, and this is very, very significant. Yes, Jesus was naturally hungry. Yes, it was a real fig tree. It wasn't a spiritual image. But the figure of a fig tree is often used in the Old Testament to represent the nation of Israel. So when Jesus found no natural fruit on the tree, it, it displayed for him a spiritual reality. Israel's religion, it just seemed green and leafy and that it should provide nourishment for all who would come to it. It seemed to have evidence of life, but a closer examination by the Savior revealed that there was actually no fruit to be had on that tree. And so after cursing the fig tree, Christ makes his imagery more clear by entering the temple and overturning the tables of the money changers and those who were selling sacrificial animals. And, and standing in the court of the Gentiles, the portion of the temple which had been reserved for Gentiles from all nations to come and hear of the God of Israel and to worship him. But at this time, as I told you, all the Gentiles had been evicted. There were no Gentiles to be seen anywhere. And Jesus stands in that place and he says, Is it not 
written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for who? For all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. Now he said this not as a passive observation. He didn't say, you know what, I'm thinking something shady's going on here. He wasn't even complaining about it. He said, guys, you're messing this whole thing up. But what he was saying was a judicial indictment against the Jews for their misuse of the house where the glory of God was meant to dwell. It was a judicial indictment against the greedy exploitation of the worshipers of God and the forsaking of their holy calling, the nation's holy calling, to be a light to the unbelieving world. When they returned to Bethany, where they were staying, the disciples were amazed that the fig tree that Jesus had cursed was so quickly withered away to its roots. And this was a sign that the day of judgment had come for Jerusalem. It wasn't going to be delayed, you know, for years and, and, and centuries and millennia. It was here. And today's passage continues this theme of a shift from the old Mosaic covenant to the establishment of a new and better covenant. This covenant, it's very interesting to know, this covenant wouldn't be Judaism light. It wouldn't improve on the Mosaic covenant. It wouldn't improve on the old covenant. But as the author of Hebrews says ever so clearly, this new covenant would make the old one completely obsolete. It would, uh, the, 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 it would be replaced, the old covenant would be replaced by a new covenant where God's grace would be accessible to all through faith. And part of replacing the old covenant required holding those accountable uh, who had so mishandled the original covenant and in so doing they had misrepresented the God who had revealed his holiness in making a covenant with sinners in the first place. In the final week before Jesus' crucifixion, uh, Jesus depicted this accountability. In other words, the fact that, that now the Jews and more particularly their leaders would be held accountable in a series of parables. Now, Matthew in his gospel gives us five separate principles uh, or parables rather on the same theme. But uh, and you can find those in Matthew 24 and 25. They're from the same time period, this final week of Jesus' life. Mark and Luke only record the one parable that we had read to us today. And all three of them also, I I will say just kind of as a sidebar, include the parable of the fig tree, which we'll, we will, um, examine more closely when we, when we enter our study of chapter 13. But this is how Jesus begins. It says, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. In this parable, Jesus is borrowing imagery from another similar passage in Isaiah 5. In fact, grab your Bibles and look that up. Isaiah 5, we're going to read the first few verses together. Now, while Jesus' imagery is so direct to Isaiah chapter 5, there are some key differences in the application of the parable. So, on Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1, this is what we read. Now, notice the similarities between this and, and Mark chapter 12. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. We're talking about vineyards. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. 
He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound very similar to Mark chapter 12? Verse 7 goes on to tell us that this non-productive vineyard, this disappointing agricultural project, represents Israel and Judah, God's chosen people, on whom he had bestowed the most loving care. Think about those imagery. He planted them on a fertile hill, meaning he put them in a place of blessing and promise, a land that he described as flowing with milk and honey. With cities and houses they didn't build, with crops and orchards they didn't have to plant. It talks about him clearing it of stones. He made all of their enemies tremble before them. He planted it with choice vines, Isaiah says. This could allude to strong judges and wise prophets and, and, and who would declare his word and faithful kings like David who executed his justice. He built a watchtower in it. Symbolic of God's watchful care and protection of his covenant people. He hewed out a wine press in it, promising to faithfully guide and discipline his people so that they would bless and nurture the world, compelling the other nations to come and join them in the worship of Yahweh. When God would, however, collect the bounty of his vineyard, he found not good grapes. After all of the care and all of the precision that he had invested in, 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 you know, putting this vineyard together, all the expense he'd gone to, he comes to collect the harvest and there are no good grapes. Only wild grapes, only unusable grapes. And in verses three and four, God asks a rhetorical question saying, what more could he have done for his vineyard? What else, what other love, what other care could he have extended towards his vineyard? He'd he'd bestowed all kinds of compassion and mercy upon them. In verses 5 and 6, God makes a promise, a judgmental promise. He promises to make the worthless vineyard a waste, removing its wall to allow it to be trampled underfoot and overgrown with thorns. Now, Isaiah's parable here in Isaiah chapter 5, speaks to the whole nation of Israel who had forsaken God and who had embraced idolatry and who would soon be dispersed in the case of the northern kingdom and sent into exile as uh, in the case of the southern kingdom as a result of their idolatry. But Jesus' parable, here's the key difference. I want you to notice this. Jesus' parable is targeted at a more specific audience. He is not talking here about the vineyard as a whole, but he says in his parable that the vineyard is leased out to tenants. In other words, God, the owner of the vineyard, has entrusted his vineyard to others to produce for him a crop. So Christ's parable is aiming at a distinct group within the larger nation. So who are these tenants who are to care for the nation, for God's vineyard. Well, we see 
over and over, time and time again, in the next uh, few weeks, as Jesus is, is, is coming up to the cross, that Jesus will direct his judgments toward the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious authorities of the Jewish nation during the final week before his death, very specifically targeting them. And Jesus' parable describes the history of the leaders of Israel very uh, allegorically. He says this in verse 2 of the passage we read this morning. When the season came, the season for what? The season for harvest. He sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And, and they took him. So, so get this picture. The, the owner of the vineyard, the one who has leased it out to these sharecropping vine, uh, you know, you know, keepers, he, he lends it out, he, and, and just as the natural order of the economy goes, he sends representatives of himself to receive the benefits of his vineyard. But watch this. This is a shocking turn of events. Verse three. And he took him and he, and, uh, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. So the representative came to get what was rightfully his and they said, no. Go, they beat him, sent him home. Again, verse four, they sent him another servant and they struck him on the head, treated him shamefully. Verse five, and he sent another. And him, they killed. So now they're not just rebels, they're murderers as well. And so with many others. Some they beat and some they killed. See, Christ is charging that throughout Israel's bloody history, Israel has been hostile to the prophets that God has sent to them. To proclaim the word, to cultivate the people in righteousness so that he could receive the harvest of their righteousness. Unrighteous men, in their hatred of God, have mistreated his messengers, persecuting them and even killing them. Jesus returns to this theme in Matthew 23. He gives a long list of of pronouncements against the scribes and Pharisees. And And in the very last one, he says this, pay attention. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the the tombs of prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. And Jesus turns that on them and he says, Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, now listen, this is the same thing he said in Matthew in Mark 12. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zerachiah, uh, or Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Imagine the picture here. The great judge of all the universe has come. And he is on his great throne before them. And he, he's, he is now 
given a pronouncement, a verdict of guilty. He sentenced them to judgment and he has slammed the gavel down. Jesus, as a holy, righteous, and just judge, is pronouncing, pronouncing a sentence on the shepherds of his people, those who were entrusted with caring for God's flock. They've been derelict in their duty. Jesus had said earlier in Matthew 23 that they tied up heavy burdens on people, that they themselves were not willing to, to move with their littlest finger. God will have a people prepared for him. And these priests and these scribes would rather wrangle over minutia than declare God's glory and his righteousness to the people. In Jesus' parable, the vineyard doesn't belong to the tenants. Let that sink in. The vineyard does not belong to the tenants. You think, well, obviously. But how often do we think that this is our church. This is, this is going to function the way we want it to, by our desires and preferences and things like that. And yet, though they are not the owner, they routinely refuse to give him what belongs to him, even abusing and murdering the appointed messages, messengers that he sends. And truly, this seems like an absurd story, doesn't it? I mean, it really does. The guy just wants his grapes, and all the messengers he sends wind up getting beat up or killed. It sounds like a Netflix true crime documentary. Don't pretend like you don't watch those. But the point is that these tenants are thoroughly evil. Now, why does that matter? They're they're rebels and murderers because they represent the guys that are proclaiming holiness and telling people how to live unto God's righteousness. And Jesus lifts the mask off of them and says, look, it's a Scooby-Doo moment. These are the most evil people around you. Jesus pulls no punches in portraying the leaders of the people as bloodthirsty, self-absorbed men. There is no olive branch offered to these wicked shepherds. Jesus then escalates his parabolic accusation against them. He says in verse 6, he still had, still going on with his parable, the owner of the vineyard had still one other, a beloved son. And finally he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now Jesus' message is absolutely clear. If these tenants did not treat the messengers righteously, they are going to have total contempt For the son of the owner. Some commentators believe that Jesus is implying that in seeing that the son had arrived, that the owner did not come himself, but the son had arrived, the the tenants may have assumed that the owner was dead. Then there, because the owner was dead, in, in their assumption, Their greedy, rebellious hands can now seize what was his as their very own. All they got to do is destroy the son, and then it can all be theirs. 
Jesus is telling those listening that by rejecting God's prophets uh, and, and by their wicked plans to put even him to death, which they were plotting to do right at that very moment, they are acting as though God is dead. That's not a good posture to take, is it? It's not a good assumption for us when we do what we want to do when we pursue our own course of action and give way to our lust to do so with even a theoretical assumption that God is dead. And you might say, come on, Mark, we would never, ever say that God is dead. Well, sometimes we act as though God is dead when we say, surely God doesn't see this, or surely God understands how hard my life is. We're acting like God is dead. But Christ's conclusion to this covenantal parable emphasizes the fact that the owner of the vineyard is very, very much alive. And that not only is he alive, he is fully just. Verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. First, Jesus sentences these unrepentant men to destruction and damnation. Next, he tells them that what they treasure, what they are fighting to keep, will be given to others who are better than them. What Christ tells them next brings crystal clarity. It brings crystal clarity to anyone who had doubted his meaning. He looks them in the eyes at the conclusion of his parable and he quotes for them Psalm 118, 22, and 23. And he says in verse 10, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. At the time of Christ's life, this passage in, in uh, Psalm 118 was already uh, accepted by everyone as referring to the Messiah. And Jesus was saying that he, he himself, was the foundation of what God was building in the redemption of sinners. The scribes were the architects who had rejected God's plans, God's tools, God's materials in favor of their own prejudices, their own desires, their own interpretations. They put their hope of they put all their hope in their ceremonies and rituals and sacrifices instead of the grace and mercy of God. Though they were to be a light to the Gentiles, the the Gentile nation that occupied them, Rome, and the many more that surrounded them, they segregated themselves and withheld the truth of God from any who sought for it. More than that, as so often with sinful humanity, they desired quick military solutions that they might dance in the blood of their persecutors. They wanted a political leader who had, who would lead their nation back to the glory days of David and Solomon. They wanted, if they were honest, to be able to now oppress their oppressors. They had clear and often cited theories as to who the Messiah might be and what he would be like. And they just couldn't accept a humble, peasant, suffering servant 
who claimed to be God and yet one who did not have their religious or priestly pedigree. Yet what these builders so flippantly rejected, God had chosen to be the foundation, the very bedrock of the kingdom. The stone the builders rejected is the cornerstone. This was the predetermined plan of Almighty God before the world was ever formed, and yet their hearts, in hearing this and seeing his actions and hearing his words, were unmoved. They did not fear God. In fact, they would blatantly execute his chosen vessel, his their deliverer, their savior, the God they claimed to serve, the God they claimed to love, would actually taste their wrath. But what they never knew is that they wouldn't trap him. No matter how hard they tried, they wouldn't crush him. Because you see, he tells us in John that he would lay down his life willingly. Because it wasn't really their wrath that he was going to taste. Instead, he would drink from the cup of his father's wrath, dying in the place of all who would believe in him, who would trust in, cling to, and rely on him alone. And so from wicked and foolish men working out their own insatiable bloodlust, the chief cornerstone would be set in place, exalted, immovable, and glorious. I love what Paul says about this very concept in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, he says, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Though the authorities pursued these designs in the evil of their own fallen hearts, they did so according to, according to uh, um, the Apostle Peter, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God was in no way the author of their sin, but ordained and co-opted their evil actions for his eternal and glorious ends. You can't beat God. The owner of the vineyard is alive and well. Amen? This parable serves a different purpose than other parables that we find in Mark and even in other places in the scripture. Um, you may remember way back in chapter 4, if you can remember that far back. It's been a while, hasn't it? Jesus told his disciples that uh, what the purpose was that he had in using parables. In Mark 4.11, he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But to, for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus used parables to give understanding of kingdom truths to those who were predestined to believe, but to conceal them from those who, in their rejection of Christ, were doomed to perish forever. But this particular uh, parable stands kind of apart from that in that it serves another purpose. See, Christ never intended the meaning of this parable to be shrouded in mystery. Because we read in this passage that they perceived, and might I add they perceived rightly, that he had told the parable against them. 
Yet in their fear of those that had been hearing him gladly there in the courts of the temple, they slinked away to await a more convenient time to take him. What they didn't do, in the light of these pronouncements by the king, they didn't acknowledge the truth of what he said, they didn't repent of their sins, and they did not believe in him. After hearing this parable and knowing it was about them, they proceeded with their vile plans, vindicating the holy foresight of their enemy. In other words, they were saying, Jesus is right. He said, we're the, we're the uh, uh, tenants who are going to put to death the son. Well, let's get to it. Let's put him to death. Even they could not avoid by their own choices God's will in, in being glorified through the death of his son. And this is why, if I could just add this, this is really just a sidebar. I don't know, because I can't know, I don't pretend to know, I'm not a prophet or a seer, but I don't know where everyone is this morning. I don't know what you came in here, what the condition of your soul is in this morning. I have no idea. I have no way of knowing. But I want to urge you, in the light of Jesus' wisdom, his foresight, his, you know, just the things that he's showing of who he is in this parable, I want to urge you with all that is in me to repent even now. I'm not talking about as I often say, saying a prayer and walking an aisle. I'm talking about surrendering your life and letting Jesus be the Lord. That's a Bible word that means the boss. To be in charge. To be the king. To be the sovereign over your life. And that comes through repentance. Will you sit there this morning and hear that God has made Christ the cornerstone the very foundation of everything he's building, and yet have the gall to resist him. If you do, I I, I don't know what to tell you. How will you be saved? How will you ever be saved? If only some of you understood that even now you are dangling over hell and eternal darkness by only a spider's web, as Jonathan Edwards said. That you would wake up and repent of your sins, repent of your self-absorption and your trust in your own wisdom and devices and place yourself dependently and only in Christ. But as I said, that while some of you, I hope, will really seriously consider those words I feel like the writer of Hebrews, better things for the rest of you. Those of you who have trusted in the cornerstone alone, how else can we apply this message this morning? Perhaps we can apply it by realizing in how many ways Jesus is in fact the cornerstone of all that Christ is building. The battle cry of the the Reformation, solus Christus, Christ alone. He is the foundation of our faith. He is the foundation of our hope. He is the foundation of our life. Christ had levied a verdict at the religious authorities who had failed to properly represent God. But now, 
We have no need to depend on any such earthly mediators. We don't need church councils. We don't need popes. We don't need priests. We don't need additional holy books. We don't need any of that. Because Christ himself is our great and eternal high priest. And you could not have a better one. Just because this is often misunderstood, let me tell you something. I may have the grace of God upon my life to be your teacher. I am not your priest. I do not mediate between you and God. Only Christ does that. Only Jesus can do that. And I'm glad because I would do a lousy job. You would want your money back if if I was mediating between you and Jesus. But more than that, we've been given the Holy Spirit, John tells us in 1 John, as our teacher to guide us into all truth. He, and, and, and more than that, right now, as you're sitting there not giving a second thought to this, Jesus Christ is seated in the heavens at the right hand of the Father, and guess what He's doing? He's interceding for you. He's praying for you. So when all you know, man-made mediators and, and uh, you know, corrupt shepherds fail, you have nothing to fear because you have a great high priest. You have the spirit of the eternal God living within you. And you have the Son of God praying and interceding for you night and day before the face of his Father. Your name is being called out before God right now. And that ought to shake you with awe to realize that. More than that, Israel was a natural nation. It was an ethnic populace. It was made up of both wicked and righteous people, just like all nations are. But the cornerstone, Christ himself, has established us, those who believe in him, as a chosen race, as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation, as a people for his own possession. And for what purpose? That we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God has made you a holy nation so that you can spend your days and your eternity worshiping him. What better purpose could you have in your life? What better purpose could you have in your life? We are a nation that will not pass away or fall because Christ has decreed it to be so. Let us live in the comfort that God is building on the chief cornerstone that though the world reject him, he is set in place never to be moved. He is, as Daniel saw him in the vision, he is the rock that that uh, is cut out without uh, uh, stones that becomes a mountain that fills uh, cut out without hands that becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth he that this is that cornerstone this is the one would you stand with me father we thank you that You have not abandoned us to those who represent you and God really are only living to build their names and their kingdoms and fill their bellies and line their pockets. But God, you have become for us directly yourself, our great high priest. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we thank you that
God, you have been so rejected by the world and, and God, that still to this day mocked and, and disregarded. But God, you are being built upon. You're, you're, you are the foundation. You are the, the one that is, is at the very base, the very core of everything we are. And without you, nothing would stand. So we also say with those reformers from 500 years ago, Solus Christus, we need no priest, we need Jesus. We need no ceremony or ritual, we need Jesus. We need no other holy book to be written out of the mind of man, we need Jesus and his word. And we thank you for this, Jesus. God, help us to live as those who daily repent, who live as those who are built on the stone that the builders rejected. God, help us to walk in holiness and, and, and just an awareness of who you are and, and your call on our lives to be holy and to, and to be dependent upon you, God. And God, even this morning, call sinners to believe in you, even in this group, Lord. Call them to believe in you and trust you, to cling to you, to rely on you, God, to put away all else, all silly idols that are passing away. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. If I could have our communion workers come and, and assist me, um, we will prepare for uh, the, uh, the offering of the, the bread and the wine representing the body and blood of Christ. And I just, man, I, I want you to uh, remember, as we talked about at the beginning of this message, that Christ has done away with the old covenant. It just... It was and given us one built on, as Hebrew says, better promises. And this is so symbolic of that covenant. It, it, it reminds us that, that through the breaking of the body of Christ, we will not be ultimately broken. Through the spilling of his blood, the stain of his blood makes us clean. And that is enough for any of us to worship if we're truly following Christ. And so I want to just invite those of you who have uh, become followers of Jesus Christ and, and have placed all of your trust in him, holding nothing back. I want to just invite you to come and receive the elements and we will uh, go back to our seats and take them. But I also want to remind you, if you are not a believer, um, we, we cannot stress this enough. Just remain where you are. This is this would have no meaning to you whatsoever. It, it's not beneficial to you. It would be worthless. And even the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11, it could even result in condemnation for you to, um, with great contempt, take the, the body and blood of Jesus Christ uh, without having a renewed heart, being born again. But we also want you to know that we are praying for you. We're praying that soon you will place your trust in Christ and uh, believe in him and receive all the benefits of his uh, power and resurrection and forgiveness and salvation. And so, but for the rest of you, go ahead and come and receive the elements and we will we will take them together in just a moment. The Apostle Paul writes for us, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake of the bread together. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's partake of the cup together. Now let's give thanks as those who are redeemed from the curse. Father, we thank you. For the gift of Jesus, that Jesus was sufficient, that his holy life was enough to, uh, when laid down, regard us as perfect in your eyes. That as, as you made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For this, may eternal praise be found on our lips. May our hearts burn with passion and gratitude for the God who has redeemed us from the curse of sin and death. We thank you, God. God, work in us, walk with us, teach us this week to love you more, to live in your holiness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I want to read to you a benediction and tell you that you're probably going to go, shouldn't you have read this like three weeks ago? You'll understand. Isaiah says, Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You are dismissed.